For nearly two decades, I've been trying to convince people that something is happening, something's going on with the world's climate system. I figured the facts were so simple, so straightforward, that people would easily get it, that they would understand and they would actually do something. But now reading The Big Myth by Naomi Oreskes and Eric M. Conway has changed my view completely. I understand now that it's ideological, it's not about facts, it's about beliefs. People believe that to accept the fact the world is changing because of the climate is the slippery slope towards socialism, communism, and it's the end of the market system, the end of capitalism, and it's well known that many people would rather die than see capitalism come to an end. And for those of us concerned about the climate crisis, we are aware, well aware that capitalism is one of the root causes of what's happening to the world's climate system. And of course, within that, it's the profit motive, it's the need for people, it's the inherent need that people have to make money, to profit from what they do. Whatever cost it is to the planet, they don't care. However, I suspect I should be a little generous because many of those appear not to care. I suspect simply don't know. They don't realise what they're doing. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. And yes, I am your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Again, welcome. Overwhelming evidence of the quickly compounding and emerging climate crisis arrives in my inbox every day, from every part of the world. The latest from Euronews Green tells us about what's happening in Europe, or tells us of one problem that's happening in Europe. And the headline for the story is, France, Italy, Belgium, the European regions most at risk from floods and sea level rise. And so the story begins. The European countries most at risk from climate change have been revealed by a sophisticated new study. Milan, Venice, Antwerp, Hanover and Lillia are among the most vulnerable cities in Europe, according to the Cross-Dependency Initiative, XDI, an independent climate risk analysis company. Its cross-domestic climate risk, GDCR, rankings calculate the physical climate risk to the built environment of more than 2,600 territories worldwide by 2050. Asia dominates the list of provinces facing the greatest total aggregated level of threat to buildings, with more than half, that's 114, of the top 200 in this region. But increasing threats from flooding, sea level rise and fire make a number of European areas vulnerable too. Now we shift to the Washington Post. The headline for the Post story is... Wild week of extreme weather ahead in the lower 48. Five things to know. A meteorological battleground is about to be set up over the contiguous United States with a dynamic jet stream pattern allowing the seasons to wage war with dramatic and sometimes disruptive results. Record cold will become established across the west with historically warm February weather in the southeast and mid-Atlantic, including temperatures in the 80s to near 90. In between... Air masses will clash, brewing serious trouble. 
a massive winter storm is expected to impact much of the US. This week, with a variety of hazards, the National Weather Service writes. Now we have a story on Barrens from AFP News. The headline for the story is Narwhal's Hungry Summers as Climate Warms. Narwhals may be not much good at hunting in the summer, according to new research that warns the unicorn tusk whales may be dangerously reliant on their ice-bound winter habitat that could disappear with climate change. Scientists studying the mammals in their fords off the eastern coast of Greenland during the summer found narwhals were largely unsuccessful in capturing prey. Now David Lindenbar, who is a professor from the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, writes on the conversation under the headline Why Tasmania and Victoria Dominate the List of Australia's Largest Trees and Why These Majestic Giants Are Under Threat. David's story begins. Australia has an extraordinary diversity of trees, with more than 820 species of eucalypts alone. But not all these trees are created equal. Some species can turn into giants, like the majestic mountain ash and the impressive white fig. Our newly published paper documents the tallest and biggest circumference trees across the continent, the biggest trees in each state and territory. The top tallest 20 trees in Australia are all mountain ash trees, between 90 metres and 100 metres tall. Tasmania dominates with 16 of the tallest trees. The other four are in Victoria. The tallest tree in the country, Centurion, is in Tasmania. It was last officially measured at 99.8 metres tall, but recent unconfirmed measurements suggest it may now be over 100 metres. Despite widespread land clearing, Australia still supports some of the biggest trees in the world but we are at risk of losing them. Large old trees play an important role in ecosystems and we must make sure they are protected. Next we have a story from Futurity. The headline for the story is Extreme Droughts Change How Forests Behave. The story begins. Missouri is home to an array of natural resources and forests are among the state's most valuable ecosystems. As warmer temperatures fueled by climate change affect ecosystems globally. Forests are under stress to adapt to these changes and ensure their survival in a warmer world. In the new study, Jeffrey Wood introduces the ecosystem wilting point concept, which explains how whole forests respond to drought. Wood and his research team found that when forests reach their ecosystem wilting point, they are less able to function properly, which includes their ability to absorb carbon dioxide. Next we go to a story from The Guardian. It's by the Rural Network. Headline for the story is Teal Independence Joined Farmers in Liverpool Plains to Oppose Santos Gas Development. The story begins. City-based Teal Independence have crossed the Great Dividing Range to support Pilliger and Liverpool Plains farmers and traditional owners fighting a Santos coal seam gas project and the accompanying Hunter Gas Pipeline. North Sydney MP Tyler Tink who grew up in Coonabarabran on the edge of the Pilliga, returned to New South Wales' northwestern slopes on Wednesday with fellow independent Sophie Scamps to hear the concerns on local landholders. They were invited by the former federal independent Tony Windsor, who has a farm in Werris Creek on the Liverpool Plains. Next we have a story from the ABC News PM radio programme. And the headline for that story is Indigenous Carbon Rangers 
Welcome, Integrity Scrutiny. Now we'll listen to the four-minute broadcast of what was said in that show. First Nations groups across Northern Australia are eyeing off the potential for new job opportunities stemming from the government's plan to allow major greenhouse gas polluters to offset their emissions with carbon credits. Indigenous rangers are hoping to convince regulators their efforts to reduce emissions on their land are worthy of payment through the carbon credit system. But sceptics of carbon offset projects are calling for much more scrutiny of the integrity of the system. Jane Barden reports. On his traditional country in the Arafura swamp of northeast Arnhem Land, ranger and senior traditional owner Dr. Bulmania Otto Campion is proud of his work preventing wildfires. He likes small fires, moving on foot and by helicopter in the cool early dry season. The low-level flames reduce the fuel load, preventing big wildfires, which release more greenhouse gas later on. Bringing back our uh, traditional fire management on country by earning income from carbon, that's made uh, a big change because Yulmo people are really desperate for job employment. The Arafura Swamp Rangers and 30 other Indigenous groups across Northern Australia earn carbon credits from the federal government and firms wanting to offset their emissions. They get about $30 per tonne for preventing over a million tonnes of carbon emissions a year, the equivalent of taking 400,000 cars off the roads. Whatever we, we make from our carbon, we give back to our people. Is it really important to you and your group that you can show that there's a high level of integrity to your carbon credits? It's, it's really important, like there's a, a tools there that we can, we can measure how much fire we're making and it's a true evidence that we look at, look at history. Dr Campion's group hopes the federal government's plan changes to rules which will require polluters to reduce or offset more emissions by 4.9% a year will provide more opportunities. The federal government's Chubb Review of Carbon Credit Integrity released last month found few problems with the system after major concerns about shonky credits were raised by whistleblowers. The review probed just four of more than 30 methods currently allowed. Some carbon credits researchers, including Polly Hemming from the Australia Institute think tank, want a new, deeper investigation of all the methods, including savannah burning. It's too big a risk to go at face value that they do have integrity. And if the carbon credits are of low integrity, no reduction in emissions is occurring at all. And the result is an increase in emissions. So I absolutely think that we should be paying ranger groups to carry out savannah burning. It's whether it's part of a market-based mechanism and whether the trade-off is that Santos or Woodside gets to keep emitting. Sissy Gore-Birch is the Deputy Chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network, which represents many of the northern groups. Her Balangara Aboriginal Corporation manages Savannah Burning in the East Kimberley. And in relation to further scrutiny, she says bring it on. Indigenous projects are always under high scrutiny every day. So it's something that we continue to deal with. And yes, we want those fairness systems in place where there's scrutiny right across all this industry because we know that there are people out there for the wrong reasons. They know it's an opportunity to make money. So we definitely want that fairness right across the board. 
Bushfire specialist Dr Andrew Edwards from Charles Darwin University helped to develop the North Australia Fire Information or NAFI website that Indigenous ranger groups use to prove they've stopped greenhouse gas emissions. Fire mapping is undertaken every week and displayed on a map on, on the web for everybody to be able to see. With the satellite information, nobody can tell any lies. It's, it's actual, it really did happen. Bulmania Auto Campion hopes in future more impoverished homeland communities will be employed in this work. We can see a lot of disaster happening. We're saying let's let's fix and back that problem because she's hurting Mother Earth. She's hurting. That's Bulmania Auto Campion speaking to Jane Barden. And now on the Sydney Morning Herald, Mickey Perkins writes. The Australian animals back from the brink of extinction. Her story begins. Australia's threatened animals live under constant pressure on all sides. Vulnerable to feral species such as cats and foxes. The human destruction of the habitat. Soaring levels of plastic pollution. And rapidly warming climate. But sometimes they also make a recovery. 29 Australian animal species, 15 mammals, 4 frogs, 8 birds, 1 reptile and 1 fish have pulled back from the brink of extinction to the extent they no longer meet the criteria for being listed as threatened, according to research published in the Journal of Biological Conservation. Now we shift to a story from the Melbourne Age, and the story is written by Carla Jaeger and Adam Hegarty. The headline for the story is, A Bloody Accident. Farmer apologises for inadvertently sparking Flowerdale fire. A farmer has apologised to neighbours for accidentally starting a fire that has burned over 900 hectares of bush and grassland north of Melbourne as firefighters work to contain the blaze ahead of a blustery change. Bill Sangster, 71, was fixing a fence on his Flowerdale property on Tuesday afternoon when sparks from his angle grinder setting off a blaze that ripped through the area destroying cars, farm sheds and livestock. Let's go now to Yale Climate Connections, where we'll find a story that has the headline Warming Winters Put Indigenous Moose Hunting Traditions in Jeopardy. The story begins. Moose have long been at the heart of Indigenous Ojibwe culture, and in much of northern Minnesota, hunting moose for their meat and hides is protected by treaty rights. But climate change and other environmental threats could put this tradition in jeopardy. Tyler Casper is an environmental biologist with the 1854 Treaty Authority, an intertribal natural resource management agency. He says, as the climate warms, a species known as a winter tick is thriving and attacking moose in greater numbers. You'll find links to all the stories mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you on board. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share it with your friends, as we all need to know all we possibly can about how we deal with this existential crisis. So until we talk again, please take care.